this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 122. We're recording on Thursday, September 3rd. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. We're here. We were just saying how this is the the Sunday afternoon of the summer, this late Labor Day. We gives us an extra week of summer or takes a week away from fall. I'm not exactly sure how it works. Um, but we're all dragging. I'm dragging. I got a cold. Man, I'm I'm dragging so hard. Yeah, and uh, the the publishing industry wants us to believe it's fall because it was a huge week for new books, which uh, we'll get to in a minute. Enormous for new books. Uh, but man, yeah, this week has just felt like every day should be Friday. It's yes. only Thursday. It has felt like it should be Friday for four days already. I'm just <laughs> angry that it's not Friday yet. I'm just mad. It's probably good that I'm just going to like sit alone in my office today and be angry at the internet that it's not Friday. Uh, but we're going to survive. Big book season is upon us. Yeah, so That's it kind of feels like we're stuck between gears, you know. Did you, did you ever learn how to drive stick? Do you know how to drive I, stick? I didn't, but like I understand you yeah. know, how like, it it's works. It's kind of like you're driving mm-hmm. stick and you get stuck between gears or it's won't re- it's revving too much, but you're still stuck or neutral. It, that's how this week feels to me. Like we should be in, should be in, it's also, it's been hot and yeah, sticky here in New York. I'm just ready for summer to be over. That's what has happened here too. We had like one cool week and it was such a little tasty yeah. tease of fall and now it's hot again. And so I'm also angry about that, that it's hot and the fall books are out, but it doesn't feel like fall and it's not yet Friday. Yeah. Everything is the worst. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just an, it's an odd, it's an odd time of year anyway, but especially since, again, this is as late as Labor Day can get. It's like, I don't know, it's like a little lacuna in the year that uh, people are trying to understand how to fill. Um, anyway, let's get on to our first sponsor, Squarespace is back. If you've got time, if you've got, you know, something, you don't have anything to do this week, this weekend, maybe you're dragging, maybe it's a good time to like start a new project, maybe something you've been thinking about. Sometimes the beginning part you can get energy up for. So, um, and one thing you might try if you're building a Squarespace for you or for somebody else, someone you know is thinking about doing something, squarespace.com is the easiest way to create beautiful websites, blogs, or online stores for you and your ideas. Elegant interface, beautiful templates, incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. A lot of times in fall, you know, I, now that I have kids and they're getting to be the point where they're at school, daycare, activities, one thing that happens a lot in, around schools, daycare activities, you need like you know, you used to have newsletters for the soccer team or for church camp or, uh, you know, for the preschool or the PTA. That's been replaced by the web and email and, you know, using online tools. And this is one of those deals where you may not need Squarespace for yourself right now, but I guarantee you there's someone in your life that's thinking about doing a website 
that could use Squarespace. So you might keep your ears open for that. Like you're trying to put up a schedule for the uh, the, the baseball, I guess it would be football practice or a basketball league or maybe a book club or something like that. You want your own private space. This is the this is the way to do it. it makes it it's very easy. Drag and drop interface. So you can move elements around. Anything from sort of a one pager with a picture and some contact information or schedule to fully featured professional sort of enterprise class websites are are possible on Squarespace. So it can scale with you as you go from your humble little whatever to your giant whatever. Squarespace is the, is the best way to do it. $8 a month, and you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for you. So sign up for all 12 months. They'll throw in your domain registration. Um, so Jimmy's uh, org can be yours right there. Responsive design, this is something that back in the day we had to worry about, but you don't anymore because Squarespace's templates already have covered. You need to look at the T-Ball schedule on your phone. Looks great. Want to look at your giant desktop? Also looks great. Every device in between. Also... Every website comes with a free online store. So if you're gonna if you're gonna send uh, if you want to sell candy bars for Jimmy singing uh, T-ball um, menagerie, this you can gets sell better them. and better. You can sell them right there. You can sell all the the chocolate flavored wingdings um, you need. Cover pages is a feature that allows you to set up a beautiful one page online presence in minutes. So like, I think this is something I've been thinking about myself. Like I need a, like just a website for myself, right? It's just here's me. Here's what I do. Here's my contact information. Uh, and, you know, just a couple of quick things about me, you know, I could put on a business card or could put in my email signature um, so people can find me. So that's something I'm thinking about doing as well. No credit card required, which is very cool. You get a two-week free trial. You don't have to enter your credit card, so you don't have to remember to cancel if it's not for you. Um, enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. One example um, of, of, a, of a website. So I... As this airs, I will have recorded a live reading lives at the Strand with uh, Tanwin Andini Islam at the at the Strand. It'll be available in the Reading Lives podcast feed uh, early next week. You can check it out. Um, so just search for Reading Lives in iTunes. But her author page is built with Squarespace, um, and it looks really great. It's really beautiful. A couple nice big images, a left scroll bar that has you know clicks uh, links to reviews of her books, her own stories, bio, upcoming events. Her business that she runs right there, uh, it looks really good. It scales all the way up. I found it on first on my phone, and then I went over and tried it on my uh, computer. Also looked great. So that's one. It can, it's a Tanwi Nandini, uh, Nandini. So it's a T-A-N-W-I-N-A-N-D-I-N-I.com. I'll put a link in the show notes if that's easier there for you. So that's an example of a professional uh, author's you know, how they're using Squarespace to make something simple and beautiful. Again, it doesn't have to be much. You don't have to do much, but you want static um, information that you can change from time to time, or it can be a blog that you update a lot. Really good solution for all of your internetting needs. Okay. Okay. Follow up. Hallelujah got- and praise the whatever. Uh, <laughs> I'm this. This makes me full on Southern lady. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. This happy. is probably so the best non news we could have hoped for. It is. It's like confirmation that there will be no news, yes. I think, which is great. Uh, back when to S- Go Set a Watchman was coming out, Tanya Carter, who is Harper Lee's attorney and allegedly good friend, trusted confidant. Oh, you threw an allegedly in there. Wow. <laughs> wow. 
Okay. Hey, my skepticism is strong okay. about this whole. Sure. These shen- I, yeah, yeah, there's shenanigans. Uh, but Tanya Carter had hinted that there might be another book in Harper Lee's safe deposit box. Like maybe this was going to be a trilogy. And I think we had all collectively flailed about what that would be like, especially now that we've seen this, what the early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird was. There was a lot of like, oh, if there is another book in this safe deposit box, what kind of shape is it going to be in and what would happen? She agreed to uh, hire a third party, you know, uninterested expert to examine disinterested, and disinterested. disinterested. I can never remember That's a tough if it's one. uninterested it is, yeah. or disinterested. <laughs> right. Um, but I do know when something is ironic or not. So. <laughs> yeah. so she hired a disinterested expert to examine and authenticate, this is the best quote, the mysterious pages of text. And uh, his name is James S. S. Jaffe. He's a rare books expert. He was brought into Monroeville recently. He has combed through the contents of Harper Lee's safe deposit box, and he has concluded that hallelujah there is not another new novel hiding in there that's good i first i've got so many questions about this one is how big can the safe deposit i mean are we talking about like the the the, the, the like, cask of amontillado or what are we looking at definitely bigger than the safe deposit box that my passport lives yeah, in right. uh so there's that um interest i you know, I wonder that an initial announcement or comment that Carter made was kind of a uh, floating some uh, a trial balloon to see what people's reaction would be. Mm. You know, to see like, oh, are people interested or, or people are just going to revolt? And, yeah, uh, the reaction was bad. From everyone's well, like, no, I, I don't want any. Yeah, I'm I'm in full on like tinfoil hat mode with mm. this also because um, the article that Tanya Carter published on July twelfth. Um, referred to how some of the previous goings through of Lee's box contained, like indicated that there were um, seven unpublished or unfinished short stories and the beginnings of a novel called The Long Goodbye, which was a true crime book project. James S. Jaffe, the, the new disinterested investigator, said that none of those appear to be in the safe deposit box. And so I guess the thing I want to know now is like, well, it's possible that they were before and now they're not. So you haven't really, like, Ghost at a Watchman happened and it's died off really quickly. I was talking about this on Twitter. That is true. Earlier no this week, you know, like everybody was talking about it before it came out. My, uh, you know, whatever, I'm on the record. I didn't think the book was very good. I don't think it should have been published in the fashion that it was published in um, without all the explanations that are necessary to understand what it really is. Uh since it just sort of fell off, I wonder, I guess I'm not beyond believing that maybe these things were in the safe deposit box. And now that the public response to Ghost at a Watchman was not all candy and unicorns and ticker tape parades, maybe these materials are no longer there because someone has realized that you sent a canary into the coal mine and it wasn't a good idea. Well, the problem with this, like anything else in which we have this circular authority problem of like, Carter is Lee's, uh, you know, estate manager. Mm-hmm. She has authority to do whatever, as far as we can tell, so that there's no way to corroborate anything, except you know, who tomorrow there could be. You know, we found some crap under the bed, right? You know, I, unless <laughs> unless like, this Jaffe has looked at every single thing that Carter could reasonably call Harper Lee's property, 
I'm always like, this could be, you know, Geraldo, uh, Al Capone's tune, you know, mm-hmm. always, there's always the plausibility that we could come back. I mean, it's good. I think that at least this part was taken care of. I do wonder like you, if this is like, had been a smash, like girl on the train sort of momentum building and we're selling 5 million copies this year and it's just a huge thing. Then there's a lot of extra incentive to conjure a text out of whatever is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe maybe the sales have been they strong. I mean, we know they sold 1.1 million copies in the first four days. So even if it hadn't sold another copy after that, it's still a huge selling book. Um, and I, I've gone on the record here and on, online too saying, I'm glad the book was made available. I'm super unhappy with the way it was packaged, kind of like you said before. Yep. But I think I've gotten what I need or what I would like to see out of the Harper Lee unpublished corpus. Like, yeah, this I don't is need enough, to see anymore. Right? We've mm-hmm, we've had enough. Because presumably also, anything that hasn't been published to this point is not as polished and finished as Ghost of the Watchmen. And it already was just barely, for me, crossing the line yeah. of acceptable sort of to do at this mo- moment in Harper Lee's life. Now, if there's an anthology someday that says, these are Harper Lee's unpublished, unfinished, untouched manuscripts and short stories, and here's the first part of whatever. And it's sort of like, you know, we get these things from time to time. Sure. And some Harper Lee expert writes an introduction yeah. and, like, annotates the thing of, like, hey, in this short story, you can see a connection to the ideas that she explored in To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever. Like, I'm I'm here for that. But th- the way that, yeah, the way that Gossetta Watchmen was packaged and presented and marketed was really not okay with me. Yeah, if there's a if there's a collection of uh, short stories that comes out next year that has the same font and cover and said you know companion to go set a watchman these t- I- I'm going to flip something over heavy a biscuit we yeah, will find I, some biscuits a and really we'll flip big them. you know like a like a dense you know buttery biscuit I'm going to I'm going to flip it over <laughs> several know, that times sounds kind of good <laughs> in, in a row so anyway so for now you know there's sort of a moratorium at least on, among the Carter camp it looks like that we're not going to get anything at least for a while. Interesting that this is made public. It is. This uh, whole but everything's been public. There's been all of these like there's this thing, there's not this thing. Here's what's coming, here's what the book is, here's what else the book is, here's what the book isn't. There's it's been so like the public what's been presented why, publicly is why so would she strange. do this? I mean, here's what I don't understand. Did, okay. Is I this mean, a PR deal or is, this, mean, is Carter I, like really wondering like, hey, what is this? Like, I, I just don't feel like it's the I matter. don't know. Like, yeah. I can't decide if I think that Tanya Carter is really savvy or completely unsavvy. <laughs> like, it's or, go, it's, or, or it's like, by turn, by some things maybe savvy and maybe about yeah, some things not. I don't think that it could be somewhere in the middle. Like... This is either a keep your nose clean PR move. Look, we did bring in a disinterested third party. Now that I know that word for sure, I'm just going to say it as many times as possible <laughs> in this episode. We Look, I brought them in. I don't have anything to hide. I brought in an expert to look at stuff and I let an expert see everything and he's confirmed and it turns out that I was wrong about the material. Like It's either that or she's, I don't know. I just... Man. Yeah, I mean, maybe she was getting some more heat from reporters, like, what's, what were you talking about? Let's see it, mm-hmm. bring it out, blah, blah, blah. And this is right. sort of a shut the people up mode. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, it has, I think, has a weird knock-on effect of maybe for those inclined to think that she's more on the up and up than others, that she's not just a money-grubbing sort of exploiter. Like, there is a line she will not cross, and that is mm-hmm. if someone else who's an expert, expert comes and says, eh, this is, you know, detritus and errata. 
Um, right. This is not something that's you know can qualify it, as a book. I don't know. It's interesting. it's also interesting that they're bringing in a third party to make that conclude, like to make that decision. Um, if that's what the case is, uh, because C- Carter has been saying all along, Harper Lee wanted to publish Gossetta Watchmen. She knew that it was coming out. She knew the shape that it was coming out in. She was happy to have it out in the world. There was that picture of her holding it and smiling. Um, but. If Harper Lee is in the shape where she can make that decision about Go Set a Watchman, then how how come it's not Harper Lee yeah. making the decision Harper, about what's, take a look at this crap. what's Would in you, her what, safe what deposit box and what's new and what's publishable and what's not? That's a um, really good point. It's a real arrow in the side of the idea that Lee is able and or willing and or whatever that she's as a, a part of the process. Right, that she's a consenting participant. Yeah. You know who's fully aware of what's happening. Yeah, I do think um, the best the the best case scenario is she doesn't know what's going on. I, I don't. From my point of view, there's no situation which she's like nodding along, understanding exactly what's happening. It just doesn't seem no. It doesn't and seem like what's going. on. I think this also tells us we're not going to be done har- talking about Harper Lee anytime soon. Like I don't think this is the last we're going to hear about what's going on with the Harper Lee. Estate. No, there no, will be not. something else. Somebody commented after a recent podcast, like, gosh, can we just stop talking about Harper Lee already? And I was like, look, I'm tired of it, too. But there's news. And it's these are this is a huge story yep. uh, in the world of books this year. And it's just not going to go anywhere anytime soon. So but, here we are. But that um, might be our last bit unless we get some sales data about go set a watchman. Yeah, well, we're gonna because I Sarah McLean and I are still going to win the bet about gray selling yeah, more we'll get down to prh and your your uh your, <laughs> your crowing probability here in a few minutes so let's move let's move on, let's on. Move we on. we need to take a minute to remember oliver Sachs, who died this week at the age of 82 he was a neurologist and a psychologist and he wrote many he was a prolific writer oh, as well like, just yeah. 15, I'm sorry, 12, 13 books. Many, yeah, a really uh, just amazing man who understood, who spent his life trying to help people who were having unusual neurological problems that like no one else could diagnose and figure out what was happening with these people. And so Oliver Sacks was the specialist um, who cracked the code, like sort of an uncranky Dr. House Mm -hmm. uh, of neurology. And uh, he wrote really beautifully and empathetically about the experiences that his patients had. He was fascinated by the human mind, by what our brains could do that was great for us and what our brains could do that was painful and difficult and made life hard. Um, Just really important, I think, sensitive work about things that are hard to understand. He took these really complex neurological and psychological problems and told them told stories about the humans who experienced them and explained them in ways that you don't have to have an MD and a PhD to grasp. Um, my first experience reading him was the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Was that yours as well? Um, yes. Yes, it okay. was. Yes, it was. And I, title- my first experience to him was, I think, on uh, Radiolab because ah. he was a frequent guest there. Um, and then I picked up man who, who mistook his wife for a hat after that. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and that collection is about uh, largely people who have different 
problems with perception and like face blindness or uh, not being able to recognize what they're seeing and the ways that the things that we see are connected to how we use language. And that was a story about a man who would look at his wife and not recognize that that was a human woman he was seeing. He thought he was seeing a hat. Um, and that's an oversimplification grossly of what the story is. But most of his books are collections of um, vignettes about different uh, patients that he saw, different people that he helped uh, who had similar kinds of problems and experiences. Um, I read Music Ophelia a couple years ago, which is really fascinating. I mean, all his books are fascinating, but this one was about um, what music does in our brains and different patients that he had seen who had experience, like really remarkable experiences with music. One patient had a traumatic brain injury that before the brain injury, the person had like no musical skill to speak of. And after the brain injury became like, um, I think it was piano, became like a piano savant, sort of overnight could hear music and understand how music worked um, and play it without any formal training. Um, studies about what happens in our brains when we listen to music and how people who hallucinate that they're hearing music, the same parts of their brains light up as if there is actual um, input coming cool. in from outside. Really amazing stuff. Um, hallucinations was one of the more recent collections all about people who have uh, different kinds of hallucinations and how you talk about that, what it's like to go through the world seeing and hearing things that aren't really there and having people just treat you like you're crazy. Um, he was, uh, I just th think the way that he approached these problems was so human uh, and really remarkable for uh, how for how humanizing the writing was we talked recently about um Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, The Emperor of All Maladies, about cancer treatment. And I, I felt like the way that um, he approached writing about cancer and cancer patients, and not just the science, but the people that experience this every day, um, Drew must have drawn on and um, been inspired in some way by the way that Oliver Sacks wrote. Uh, probably, uh, if you haven't heard of Oliver Sacks before, you know, you probably best know his work from the movie Awakenings, which is based on his book Awakenings. It starred Robert De Niro and Robin Williams um, about these patients who had these uh, these really severe paralysis that looked like advanced Parkinson's. Um, he came to work there uh, in the, um, the late 60s. They had been in there for – then since 1918. Um, so they've been there for, you know, m multiple decades mm -hmm. in this torpor. He and some other doctors there experimented with L-DOPA, um, and they woke up for a little while and then and didn't. And fascinating, heartbreaking, terrifying, beautiful movie and story and book. I, you know, what's, what's wild about Sachs is the empathy is clear. His curiosity is clear. He isn't afraid of the brain and the mind, which I think is something I could learn from because some of this stuff I find terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, his, there's a real palpable sense of wonder. Yeah, like this idea that, you know, you wake up, you could get the flu and suddenly you, you're a statue for 50 years and then you wake up for six days and then you go back to it. Like that seems to me like one of the circles in, in the inferno to me. Like that's, mm -hmm. but Sachs doesn't, he's unblinking, but also... Hopeful, I guess, that you know this great understanding we have and appreciation for this, this this bizarre lump of flesh between our ears, um, is 
is good, you know. And I, I think a lot of the writing does quite bring into question a lot of the sort of post-enlightenment days we have about the unicity and the stability of the self. I think there's mm-hmm. no question about that. can be hard to hear. Um, but also it's true, so tough that it's hard to hear right. um, uh, to some degree. But really amazing things. Um, some really good uh, – it's good on audio, I've found. Mm-hmm. There's vignettes so you can listen to it at, at, at a time. It's interesting. It's it's scientific without, be, without being clinical. Um, I, yeah, that's I think a really great. great way to describe him. He's really – and he wrote so openly and compassionately about his patients, but also very openly and honestly about his own diagnosis yes. when he um, found out that he had terminal cancer, which is what he passed away from. Uh, he continued writing these really wonderful pieces about what it was like to be the patient mm-hmm. um, and to be hearing devastating news about his health and about his life. But he processed that with as much hope and as much grace as any of us could hope to have in the face of uh, getting that kind of diagnosis. I, just, I think just a really fine example of um, what science can be, what writing can do, the the power of writing about science in a way that reaches you know, quote unquote, lay people um, and and being open all the way around. Like, I think curiosity is, is just the right word that you used. Um, he was a really incredible man, and he's left us a really incredible body of work to read. So Oliver Sacks, you will be missed greatly. Yeah. Um, his memoir, My Life, came out last year, as, as mm-hmm. fate would have it. Um, and his last few art columns for the Times are really moving stuff about they really are. coming to the end of your life and knowing what's happening and um, at least uh, literarily looking at it with uh, grace and courage and uh, fortitude. Uh, speaking of non-grace and non-forge Yeah, let's move on because I'm starting to tear up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, this is a thing. I don't know if this is copycat syndrome or what's going on here you know this I've, I've read too much about social proof and influence recently to to, to dismiss the idea we talked um, recently actually actually an afterthought a week or so ago because it the story had already happened about the student at the university of north no what was the other student was it it was duke it was Duke. This has and to I be. This has. This is a cross. This it? is like. I feel like we skipped it because we were like. No, uh. we came back and talked to it at the end of some other story. Uh, okay. Anyway. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. So this is just six miles down Tobacco Road in uh, Chapel Hill, down from Durham at Duke, where a student is objecting to the books in a 9/11 literature class because it's he, he thinks they're sympathetic towards terrorism. But wait for it. The kicker. The kicker is he hasn't read any of the books. Which, he has not read the books. He's concerned, this is my favorite part, that the class isn't, quote, fair and balanced. I wonder where he got that phrase. Um, Boy, I don't know. And I looked at the reading list. I've read a few of these books, I have to so say. So have I. Uh, he objects to The Shadow of New Towers by Art Spiegelman, which, hey, I was in New York on September 11th. So was Art Spiegelman. That one, that one seems right on the money to me. It's not even about terror. I mean, it's not about terrorists, really. Um, so he hasn't done the reading. It's a it's an oversized graphic novel. It's this huge monolith. It looks and like it looks like that thing from two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. It's moving. Wait. It's powerful. It's confusing. Uh, it's I would say discomforting in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but As is uh, the reluctant. Yeah, the reluctant fundamentalist by Mohsin Hamid uh, is one of the selections, and it is about a person who becomes a terrorist. It's a very quiet novel about the experiences of this person who finds himself in a devastating situation. Um, 
the the student who is a freshman, which I just want to be like, buddy, you are young. You don't even know what you don't know. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. The per- We say it over and over. The purpose of a liberal arts education is to expose you to all kinds of ideas and experiences. But he's claiming, quote, the readings mostly focus on justifying the actions of terrorists, painting them as fighting against an American regime or mistaken idealists or good people just trying to do what they deem right. None of the readings assigned in the freshman seminar present the September 11th attack from the perspective of those who died or from American families who lost loved ones. Um, okay, yeah, well... Uh, I don't know what to say about that. We, I mean, I, for, I really like, don't know I mean, what to say about that. We this. don't have stories from the perspective of those who died yeah, because we don't, don't know, know what that... Be fiction, we can right. only guess it would be fiction, and that would be fiction that could and probably will be written. There's well, post... There's, like, Post nine eleven literature is its own. Mm-hmm. Th- it is its own thing now. Um, I'm sure there are memoirs by um, families who lost loved ones. There is fiction that explores the experience of losing someone in nine eleven. There's lots of fiction where characters are in New York on yeah. September eleventh. Extremely and it's either, loud, incredibly close. Right, uh, and, that and that's like, book? and and it's. We're far enough away from September 11th now that it's showing up in any time you're going to set fiction in New York in the early 2000s, the writers allude to it, at least, or there's a mention of that day and how it played into the character's experience. I've come across it a lot in in novels that I've been reading recently. I would guess that part of the function of this course about the literature of 9-11 is to present more than one perspective. Or more than two. Like, even or, his language right. is... is- you know, un- unknowingly naive. Like there aren't two perspectives on nine eleven. There right. There's possibly, not the victims and the bad guys. And I mean, right. there's so many ways of of coming at it. I mean, the other critique I'd have is his particular one is like, we're not getting the side of the people who died and the American side. Well, you know what? If you're a freshman at Chapel Hill, you know the Americans. I mean, you don't need mm-hmm. that part of the story. You, you know that. You've seen World Trade Center or flight. Uh, what's I can't remember the name of the the movie that's about the people who took over the flight that uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember the flight number. Nine seven three. Anyway, seventy three. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the we know that story. Like this is the this is to round out, to enrich, to complicate. Like uh, think, this this fundamental worldview about how history works. And if we are is, to is, is problematic. If we are to try to make sense of why does terrorism exist in the world? How does an event like September eleventh occur? How did an event like the Holocaust mm-hmm. occur? Part of the mental work there is to understand how a human being buys into ideas that lead them to strap on a vest and set off a bomb or that lead them to hijack an airplane or that lead them to round up people of a different religion and put them in camps to kill them. Um, that's part of the work. Um, it, uh, if we are to, if we are to understand these world events, it has to be from more than one perspective and fiction that explores that experience is part, is part of doing that. A memoir that explores that experience like Spiegelman's in the shadow of no towers is part of doing that. I mean, not to mention that the the primary problem here is that this person is objecting to books that he has not read. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could make an argument uh, after you've taken the course and read some of these books that, you know, you know, there's a perspective missing in your quote-unquote holistic look. Also, he's not enrolled in the course. I, I don't get it. Um, 
But in a, the specific freshman, I don't care about. Like this kid, whatever. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But I, it's part of this larger idea of like, mm-hmm. I don't know, curating your exposure to ideas and perspectives and judging them before even having any, you know, it, it's like commenting on a post by reading the title. That's like, that's whatever that whatever <laughs> which, that is, which is the thing that happens. Oh my! God. It's probably more than more than the contrary uh, of commenting after reading. Well, that that might be unfair, but it's like sort of a this need to judge and react to the mere sort of like spine of the book. Right, right, right. that's exactly. It, it's it's insidious and it's pointless um, because then it's like he said. Because what if I have the counters? Like, well, I I didn't read the books either, and I disagree with you. And then where are we? Right. And what happens? Like, I think I want to really know what is this kid afraid of? What are you afraid is going to happen to you if you read these books? What are you afraid is going to happen to students who read these books? That they will have a more nuanced approach to understanding. They're going to be brainwashed into sort humanity of joining beyond. ISIS or something. Like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, what's the downside here? Um, I guess that it's unfair. It's an unfair portrayal. Uh, well, I, I think know. if you ha- if you have to consider terrorists as humans who make decisions, however flawed and however flawed the decisions and however evil the actions, if you have to consider Mm. a terrorist or a murderer or anyone who does a bad thing, if you have to consider a rapist as a human and try to figure out what that human experience is and read a story that explores that rather than painting with the broad brush of anyone who does any of these things is just bad, period. Right. Then... All of his life gets harder. Yeah. Well, it's not unlike in a way, you know, what Sachs does for the mind is you have to look at the sort of the fragile notion of this stable self of the will and the free of of choice and that, you know, you are good and other people are bad. And so it was and so it shall ever be. I, you know, I I think, you know, we got to look. The other part of it is the the post 9-11 reaction, like part of one of the poetry collections include his poems from Guantanamo. Boy, you got to take a hard look at Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in 9/11 and, and its and its aftermath and its um, precursors in the Iraq War and what's going on in Afghanistan and Iranian deals, like the whole thing is so mind-bogglingly, mind-bogglingly knotted and complicated that to not even start to have the conversation after having some exposure to various viewpoints. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's the thing I think when, that gets – it's not this particular student that it's getting me worked up and also a lot of people I saw writing about it and tweeting about it getting worked up. It's like whatever this mindset is, we need to cut this off. This this is cannot be the new standard for critiquing a world. It just can't, it just can't be. It can't be. And, you know, there is a lot of conservative rhetoric about uh, like the conspiracy of liberal education. Right. And that all college professors just want to turn all of their students into pinko commies. Yeah, look how well it's liberals. worked. You know, Donald you know, Trump you, is the leading Republican yeah, anyway. It's, yeah, this, the, the kid who wrote this article is dropping the phrase fair and balanced. I've watched Fox News. I know what they say about colleges and professors and education. And it's worth noting that one of the students who has attended this class, who does consider himself conservative, says that the article is nothing but gossip mm-hmm. about a great great course that's taught by an amazing professor. This student who is conservative said, through most of the semester and even in my final paper, I actively disagreed with some of the professor's opinions. He in turn welcomed
welcomed my arguments. And as such, this course was amazingly valuable because it challenged my opinions. A spokesman for the university named Jim Gregory defended the class, and he notes that it's not required. And also, let me remind you again, the student has not enrolled in it. He says, Jim Gregory says, the university isn't forcing a set of beliefs. We're asking them to prepare for and engage in every lesson, debate, and conversation and share what they think. That's what education is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is, a, this is insidious too at public schools because I've seen it happen like whispers and rumors when I was at the uh, University of Kansas of, you know, there was a sort of an anonymous petition from the state legislature to the university to get the names of all the courses that had any material about homosexuality in it, mm. right? As mm-hmm. a sort of, I guess, as a, a saber rattling or not even saber rattling, but like saying the word saber to the idea yes. that you could possibly lose funding or there are things. So that these things where federal it, money and government money is, is involved also mm-hmm. can be very problematic because I'm sure North Carolina, I, I, historically a Republican state, I'm sure they have a Republican um, state house. It's very different than sort of Duke, which could stick to its guns a lot more because it's a private entity. I mean, they have people right. they're beholden to as well, but it's not the state legislature, which is a political entity. So, you know, that, I mean, that's I the thing that's very hard. If you want, if you want your education to only echo back the the beliefs that you already have and to reinforce those, you need to go to a private school that is built around the beliefs that you have and that you would like to have reinforced. If you're going to a public university, if you're going to a liberal arts university, if you're going like I went to a Jesuit university where you will be required to engage with ideas that are different from the ones that you grew up with. Mm -hmm. No matter who you are, you're going to be required to engage with something else because this is what education is intended to do, to to, to take us four years later and put us out into the world as people who have a broader understanding and a bigger ability to engage with ideas and to ask meaningful questions and to understand that the world is not a black and white place but has many shades of nuance and that being a nuanced thinker is a valuable thing. That's what you're getting into when you sign up for liberal arts education, and that's important, and it needs to be preserved. Uh, the What you were talking about at Kansas happened, a, a variation of that happened when I was in graduate school there. There was a professor who for years had been teaching a really popular human sexuality yeah. course, and it was popular because it was so honest and real, and he talked about... Was it Dennis Daly? Was that it was Dennis yeah. Daly, yeah. He went to my church. Yeah, nice um, yeah it, it was a well-known course with mm-hmm. the undergraduates because he was like, look, you're young adults sex is important. It's a part of the human experience. We're all going to have it at some point. Um, let's talk about it in a real way. And he he talked about not just, you know, mainstream, acceptable versions of sexuality. He talked about sexuality as people age. He talked about gay sex. He talked about trans issues. Uh, and that was unacceptable. It had been challenged. Like, I think he got, probably was used to just getting hate mail from being a sex ed teacher mm-hmm. in Kansas for his career. But while I was in grad school there, um, the funding was pulled for his course because he showed videos in class of I think it, the thing that like put it over the edge was he showed a video in class of an older couple having sex and was talking about what sexuality was like as we age. And um, the students were fine with it. There was no complaint. But word got out and someone in the Kansas legislature uh, claimed that he was distributing pornography on campus and Kansas got upset and they pulled the funding for that course. Um, so he went and taught it off campus, but the university lost a great instructor. And a, po- a course that had been popular, like, for decades. Oh, yeah. When I was an undergrad, like, 
It was, because I we, didn't take the course. It was sort of a rite of passage. Like because people like would the, take it. Yeah, like the notion that elderly people have sex lives and gay people have sex lives and people who aren't just, you know, like middle-aged suburban people in a man-woman marriage with four kids and two dogs. Yeah. Um, anyway, and, education and this is, the, is, this is the, I mean, I think you can draw a line between this and you know, parents uh, wanting some girls pulled from a library mm-hmm. because they haven't read it either. I mean, I think it's all, you know, the the kids who see that happening are the ones that are going to um, balk at even trying things uh, that they don't immediately know they're going to uh, uh, agree with, that mm-hmm. they're going to like. Um, this idea that it's somehow their job to police the things they haven't read and what people are learning about. You know, and I, some people are conflating the trigger warning discussion with this, and that's bogus. And if you that think that's bogus. true, you can go home. I'm sorry to, to say. Yeah, to the left. Speaking of people that can go home, these are people going <laughs> home on purpose. Uh, and we're proud of these people. Yeah, I don't... Did we talk about... We didn't. We were so just like over it. Yeah, we did not so talk about Kate, the story last week. The follow-up is actually more interesting than the, the, the initial controversy. So Kate Gale who uh, is still uh, uh, the the managing editor of Red Hen Press, wrote a piece on the Huffington Post that she, uh, a couple days later, pulled down, criticizing critics of the AWP, American Association of Writers and Writing Programs, and using some loaded language. Oh, uh, man. Basically saying, don't don't judge the AWP because of reasons. Um, and this is reacting to some criticism of AWP about their own diversity initiatives, their panels, um, their uh, the process for selecting panels, and basically the sort of the standard contemporary critique of many institutions about about diversity. Um, there was a lot of immediate pushback, uh, including yours truly uh, and another's a book right. I have to say, oh yeah. Um, and then it was pulled. She said some things that are not okay. Yeah, not not okay in a lot of different ways. And the, also, she didn't even know what she didn't know. Another one yeah, of those she, situations. It was very revealing. Yeah. Like she she said some things that clearly she thought were okay mm-hmm. to say, and that in itself was very telling. And um, word comes down uh, this week, uh, Tuesday, as it so happens, that some of the board members, uh, advisory board of Redhead and Press, including Sherman Alexi, Carrot Huango, and Helena Maria Veramontes, which I've read one of her books, um, which was great a long time ago. I just remembered that as soon as I said the name, have resigned. Um, some other authors have decided to go other ways. Um, I, I think I even tweeted at the, on the day of, I was looking at their, their message to see, like, who are these people? Um, that Sherman Alexi was the, on the advisory board. I was like, boy, I don't know, because there was stuff about Native Americans in there that mm-hmm. was, it was... Uh, cringeworthy. And I was like, boy, I don't think she asked uh, Alexi to take mm-hmm. a look at this first. Um, and we mentioned it here just because it's interesting follow-up, but also that this is the kind of thing that's starting to have knock-on effects, right? Yes. You're, you're, people are saying things out loud, and other people are listening. Um, and Apparently, and this is, I've heard this from, you know, reputable sources. I don't know this personally, but that Red Hen Press itself has been committed to diversity. They've had diverse authors of different kinds. You know, you look at the advisory board and just the names I read off among others, um, people from different ethnicities and races and uh, religious backgrounds from all over the country and beyond are on that advisory board. So it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's so bizarre. I mean, that makes it some of the bizarre piece. And I think the thing that's enlightening to me in this situation is this isn't, this isn't, uh, you know, a conservative freshman writing the, the, for the newspaper at Chapel Hill. Right. Uh, this is someone who's managing a press 
that has at least nominal commitment to issues of diversity and inclusivity, and still, and still, this is what happens. And still, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are not going to put up with it anymore. And I think this is one of those situations where, if authors have some choices, they're going to start choosing presses and agents and editors um, that they feel good about aligning themselves with. Uh, and I, you know, I hope the press itself, if not Gail herself, I know I know nothing about her. Um, can sort of use this as a learning opportunity and really redouble their efforts and take a look at themselves and and see if it's going to be any better. Right. This is another example that words have consequences. A very strange reaction, I have to say, beyond the the content of wanting to defend the AWP from critics and sort of step in. Uh, I don't know. I thought it very bizarre. Yeah, it's hard when a thing that you care about is criticized. I guess so, yeah. And it looked to me like Kate Gale's piece was it was kind of knee jerk like if you're criticizing this thing that I care about then you must be criticizing me too like if AWP isn't good then maybe I'm not good because I'm part of AWP and rather than looking for solutions and looking at okay what maybe there are some problems in how AWP does things what could we do to make those better um it was this was a very it was a very ugly sarc like very sarcastic and snarky exaggerating people's positions and using outdated language uh, it's and it's the kind of thing like we've seen this this is a much you know less severe example but it's the kind of thing that we saw like with gamergate Mm. when um people who love games can't stand that those games are criticized for problematic representations of women and people of color. And so it becomes about attacking your critic yeah. rather than engaging with the criticism. Because the people um, who are criticizing the, AWP here, my understanding is a lot of them are members of AWP. Like they're part of yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. this is in a, 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 much of it. And I could. Right. I there's a I'm call right. from within the body of AWP membership to address yes. AWP's handling of diversity and to improve what they do. Um, and the the members of AWP are diverse and they want to see that done well. Uh, and Kate Gale really did not handle seeing criticism of an organization that she cared about. Um, she did not handle that with any kind of grace. It is um, interesting, too, that this is not the kind of story we were hearing both the back and forth two years ago when we started right. doing the show. This is a, I don't know if it's an inflection point for conversation about diversity or not. It, it feels to me like a different moment when the advisory board high-profile authors of a press step mm-hmm. down because of, you know, this sort of insensitivity or obtuseness or whatever adjective you want to use. Like yeah, people stepping down, people choosing different presses, people making career professional choices based on an individual and the 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 institution that individual is in charge of, the, their reactions. And uh, I think we're this is the tip of the iceberg to some degree. Um, speaking of that... Uh, Lee and Lowe, uh, children's book publisher mostly, is that right? Yes, Do I have that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who themselves are um, uh, manifestly and, and uh, openly committed to issues of diversity um, um, for children's books and representation, but also authorship and editorship all across the board, have started a petition to ask the big five publishers to release their diversity statistics about their – is it mostly their employees or also their authors? Yes. I don't – I it's primarily I just about realized their, I didn't know if I got all the way down into it. It's primarily about their um, – the racial and ethnic makeup of the publishing 
workforce. Um, Lee and Lowe has collected data from a lot of smaller publishers. They've they've been collecting this data for a while, and the call has been out there. And many smaller publishers and independent presses have opted in to put their numbers in so that Lee and Lowe can get because publishing is not doing this on its own. No. Um, so Lee and Lowe is taking steps to try to get sort of a baseline starting picture of what does diversity look like in the publishing workforce with the belief that, as we've said many times, that part of getting more diverse books out into the world is having more people of color working in publishing at all the steps along the chain. Or even so if that's not know, the goal, it's just fair, right? It's just, part yeah, right. right. I mean, <laughs> um, that would be a nice knock-on effect, but even it has its right. own uh, sort of imperative. Right. This is a net good in itself yes, right. for publishing to become more diverse. And one of the things that Lee and Lowe really needs in order to have a rich and accurate baseline measure is numbers from the big five publishers who have not at present opted in to share this data. Um, so they've started a change.org petition and the hashtag big five, the word five sign on um, that you can participate in and help share around if you want to encourage the big five publishers to release these numbers um, for Lee and Lowe's survey so that we have a, you know, an independent look at what the state of diversity is in the publishing workforce. Yeah, it's unlike Vita in which they can sort of uh, post hoc do it by looking at bylines and who gets reviewed because it's about, you know, reviews and reviewers of work in the wild. Um, you know, there's not public access, I don't believe, to the employee names and positions of, mm -hmm. you know, who works for Random House and editorial. And I don't know if they're asking for Not to mention all... racial and ethnic information. That's not... Yeah, uh... it's, yeah, that's also if you get someone's name and they're not a public figure on like an author, which probably can find a website or publicity or something about it, very difficult. So they're asking, they're going straight to the horse's mouth to try to get the information. I can understand why the big five publishers might be reticent because the numbers aren't going to be good. We know they're not going to be good. We've heard anecdotally, like from some self-reporting that like something like 89% of the people mm -hmm. in one um, particular... Uh, I think anonymized survey, 89% yes, yeah. of the people were white. Um, I wonder if it's even higher than that because, you know, probably people of color might be, might have been more, I don't know, amenable to participating in a survey mm -hmm. about diversity. That's just a supposition on my part. It could also go the other way. Um, but it's not going to be good. And everyone knows it's not going to be good. And everyone knows I think it's not good. Right, I think which, we'd all love to be pleasantly surprised, but I don't think we're right. going to be. I think, you know, we all know that it's not going to be good. Like that writing is on the wall already. The jig is up. There's not a reason for publishers to sit on the data. Well, there's not a good reason. There's like, not a good reason. Let's... There are reasons. One is that, you know, sometimes the actual numbers are going to play worse than the feeling or the supposition. Sure. You know? um, the feeling is already, I don't know. I think the feeling is already there. I don't know. I think, it's among... gonna, I think, I think if we got full data, you would get, I mean, not national headlines, but you would get a piece on Vox and you'd mm -hmm. get a piece on the Huffington. I mean, you'd get And it, it a would, lot it's to of the coverage. tune of diversity in publishing is even more bad, bad than, than we and thought. It's even worse. And then, and then what are you going to do next year? Well, what are I your think numbers you, gonna look? I mean, this yeah, is all, I think, the same reasons I think Lee and Lowe is smart to ask for this is the same reason that, you know, the big five publishers probably don't want to do it because it's going to put right. pressure it's, on them to reveal, but also gotta, to change. Like that's the, that's right. the thing. Right now it's easy to say we are committed to and we care yeah. about diversity, but you don't have to put any money where your mouth is. Just like is. I'm eating my vegetables, I, Rebecca. I am. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying to do better. Well, I'm committed to vegetables, to, you mean donuts. I'm committed to it. It's something I work on every day. We're committed to it in the long term. Uh, so, uh, you yeah, know. Yeah, I, what I want is 
The very and, thing you want is the thing they don't want. Right. I mean, I want publishers to take their lumps and say, here's the reality and take whatever the headlines are that come with that so that we can all live with that being the reality and start to work for more. Because I think we've talked on the show before about like when you pay attention and measure a thing that makes it easier to change the thing. And if you're not measuring something, it's really hard to cause change. Vita has been effective in doing this with uh, the coverage of women and now the coverage of people of color in book reviews. So measuring something and putting the numbers out publicly does create a kind of accountability that's not there currently no. in any, uh, you know, official organized sense. Uh, I really hope that publishers will do this and just realize we all know the numbers are going to be bad. We all know the headlines are going to be depressing. We all know it's going to be a story, but we all know that this is the case. Well, I think some of us do know. I think a lot of people don't. Mm. And again, I'm not trying to justify the published reactions. I just understand it. At that, you know, to, yeah. th- I, I can totally see their position. I think it's wrong. I think they've, you know, they, they've I, kind of made their own bed here you know, to some degree. I think we are, we're approaching a point in this industry where ignoring the reality is not going to be tolerated for much longer. And this is a demand from people signing this petition are trying to create a mandate for publishers to be transparent about the state of the industry. I don't think it's going to last much longer where people are just okay with publishers deciding not to. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like, it wouldn't take much, but uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, Toni Morrison to switch houses. Right. Right, because, you know, she looks at... uh, uh, she's Knopf, is that right? Her imprint. Yeah, she's Knopf, and, which is a random house imprint. And look, just just to use one because that's what came to mind. To say, you know what, I, this is not all right. I want to see changes, or until you change, I'm going to be with that publisher over there that's slightly better, or I'm going to figure out something. You know, like mm-hmm. whatever, or like Alexi stepping down from the board. Like it wouldn't take much. He's with Little Brown. If he saw the uh, Hachette numbers, uh, and be like, you know what, we got to do something about this. That kind of pressure, I think. I think Imagine that author, James Patterson or Dan Brown or someone who sells bajillions uh, of books. You know, John Green, you know, someone mm-hmm. who has a lot of juice. Uh, you know, anyone like that could really put the screws to somebody um, and say, you know, eh. I think also, to be honest, a, a publisher could could do something about it and say, you know, we've got a five-year plan. Here's the number we want to be at in five yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be perfect. We're not all the way there, but we're going to make improvements and it takes some time. Because I do think this is not one of those situations necessarily. It could be, maybe it's not. But my my sense is that uh, it's not just it's not that they have a huge stack of uh, editorial intern positions and they're only choose you know they're they're selecting disproportionate number of white people. I think that also that stack is disproportionately yes, white. Yes, absolutely. So they got to do a full stack sort of like effort on the diversity part. And that is not something, and I do sympathize with this, that you can turn on overnight. Right. It's not a quick fix. But I think if somebody did have a a good plan to say, yes, this is real, here's the plan. um, I think pressure has to come from not just the authors of color and the people of color who work in publishing and the small presses that are committed to diversity. It has to come from white people who work in publishing Mm -hmm. and white authors who sell millions of books and who benefit from the, who benefit from the systemic racism that's built into this industry and that's built into many industries. This is a problem of our creation. And if we want it to get better, then we have to be the ones who, who make the noise and force it. Um, This is a problem that 
that we've all contributed to and that unless you are going to take action and, and have a plan, you're con you will con continue to contribute to perpetuating it. Um, it would be, it would be awesome. I would like, I would love to see a major best-selling author. If one of the author. big five has a, has the, the moxie, the, to be the first out of the gate here would be the pulp. This, this would be the move, right? Like mm -hmm. you want to say, you know what, here are our numbers. We're not proud of them. Right. Here's what Here's we're going to try to do. We'd love some ideas as well. We have a five-year plan to sort of get us moving in the right direction. And that's not going to be the end of the struggle. That's not going to be the end of the story. That can be the end of the effort. Um, but here's what we want to do. And, you know, we're, we, we're committed to doing it now and we're going to be accountable. I think people are going to hear that first person. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's going to be scary yep. to be that first person. Yep. It's also an incredible opportunity. Yeah, it's kind of like they say, you know, like public relations, get out ahead of it. Get out ahead of the story. You don't want to be the fourth, right, with your shitty mm -hmm. numbers. Uh, right. I have to bleep that. <laughs> uh, you don't want to be the fourth, uh, but you'd like to be the first. You, you want to either have the best numbers or be the first with the bad <laughs> numbers right. and, and a plan and some, you know, some, some self-reflection plan. Because it's kind of a problem like global warming, which if you're working at a publishing house now, this both is and isn't your doing, right? Like with global warming and climate change, like we both, you know, any of us who are alive both did and didn't do this. But that doesn't mean it's not our responsibility and our moral imperative to do something about it now. Um, right. Like, I, you know, I was making the case on Twitter the other day. I would think even from their own business, that the, the, the business case for more diverse titles and that that is never thought about really blows me away. Because if anyone who's seen these sort of forward-looking demographic trends of the U.S. alone, I don't even know about the rest of the world. That's one of my great blind spots is uh, everything beyond the, the lower contiguous 48. But you look at the demographics, like there's fewer and fewer white people. And it's not going to be but like 10 or 15 years between white people in the U.S. are uh, outnumbered by people who aren't white. And th these are your future readers, man. Like yep. these are the people who are three years old now. In 30 years, they're going to be the white hot center of your book buying public. And I think, you know, beyond even the, you know, a moral, ethical, feel good area, which I think is uh, dismissive of it, because some people think it's just that social justice warrior crap. There's a business case to be made, like, you're going to get left in the dust by something else. And I don't know if it's music, and I don't know if it's video games or whatever it might be. But if you don't, you know, people people can tell when they're not being represented. And like, we've seen statistics, like, the the, the, the person that reads more books per capita than any other demographic are black women between the ages of 35 and 49. The, 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 the highest instance of reading one book per month is black girls between the ages of 8 and 14. Like, there's a disjunction here that is beyond, let's, let's just make it fair. It's like, these are real opportunity here. And I think, I think it's obtuse and of publishers uh, not to see that. Absolutely. I think if publishers don't want to be political and don't want to talk about race problems, they sh could at least get their heads around the business case. Yeah. You know, <laughs> surely, surely you're uh, rapaciously greedy enough uh, to, to see even that, that that would make sense. So there's a lot of different ways. This is this. I don't think this one's going away. Myself. I don't think so either. Um, Justina Ireland wrote a piece about uh, this campaign with Lee and Lowe for Book Riot. We'll put the link in the show notes. It has the link to the change.org uh, petition. It has the link to Lee and Lowe's uh, diversity statistics gathering efforts. Um, it has more information and you can click your way around those and dive into all of the data that Lee and Lowe collects and uh, aggregates from around the web. 
as well about the state of diversity in publishing. If that's a thing that interests you and you've listened to this far in the show, so we hope that it does, that it's a thing you I, care about. I think about. Scholastic okay. is the biggest one to have signed on so far. I think I saw that they had agreed yeah. to, to, they're not one of the big five, but the biggest one uh, mm-hmm. of the of the also. All right, on we got to roll on. Yeah, you got to tell we, me we about we, we, our we, next we, sponsor. We have Harry's Harry's back is week. back. Uh, so here's the deal. Shaving is the worst. It's, you know, a daily grind of annoyance and expense. You, you know the story. You go by, I, I think my, you know, my, my old stuff that I got the pharmacy, I think it was $10,000 a blade. Like I could be off, you know, inflation or whatever. You have to give them a toe. Yeah, it, it's crazy expensive. And it's, you know, you can only use this one kind. It's got 15 blades. You got to put a freaking battery in the thing. And it looks like, you know, something that uh, Marty McFly uh, found in uh, Back to the Future Part 2. Harry's is going back to basics. It's a great blade with a great price. They're not just as good and half the price. They're better. The first blades were made in Germany that they had for their company. And they liked the blade so much that they said, you know what? We'll take that factory. That, that's going to be ours now. No big deal. So why pay 32 bucks for an eight-pack of blades? Just saying that makes me angry. It's half the it's price at Harry's. It's for women. Is it like, worse? I, paid, I don't even know. Yeah. I, the blades that I used to use were like $26 for four. That, that, that's unacceptable. <laughs> That's outrageous, and we can't have this. We can't. This is why we have hair. So you get a better shave that respects your skin, face, and legs, and your wallet. So they're serving your back pocket and your face at the same time. How many many companies can you say are doing that? The starter set to get you going, it's a very reasonable deal. So this is to see, you know, if Harry's is for you. $15 gets you a razor. Moisturizing cream and three razor blades, so you get the you get the handle and blades and some junk to put on your face that'll help you not burn yourself or cut yourself. And use promo code book, you can get five dollars off that. So for ten bucks, you can you can you know you can dip your toe in um, and get started with Harry's because like you know I, I've I've said this before in a previous Harry spot like. There was at the time there where it was like the blades were so expensive and I knew you know, using them, you get a few uses out of them, you got to spend another $10,000 on that blade. I just let the beard go. Also, you never have to leave the house yeah. because Harry's gets shipped to your door. And as a person who has legs to shave, yes. that's more surface area. So blades run out, you know, the blade goes bad faster than a blade does for a dude shaving a face mm-hmm. that is less surface area. I don't want to go to CVS and make them unlock a thing for my razor blades that I have to hand over my right arm for. This comes to your door. It's automatic. Yeah, like you, you sign up for a plan. You, they send, you know, you can pick the number of blades you need at one interval. They and, show uh, up at your house. And like, I, that's a, you know, I've thought about this before. I don't really know, like, how many faces is a pair of legs worth of shaving because like there's only so many like <laughs> there's only so many hairs this that is like a, blade a very can silence cut. of the lambs feeling question what <laughs> no, uh, yeah it's it's you know there's only so many hairs each blade can cut so like if you're shaving legs that's kind of at least five or six faces maybe more in there so you're you're actually spending more per shaving cycle with mm-hmm. uh, if you're shaving your legs and not just ladies shave legs and not just legs are shaved in addition to faces but uh, we're going to we're going to put a veil over that yeah, for a second we're going to stop there um, <laughs> so you know so when i so when i start getting hairies again i'd shave more often and you know i'm getting older and i look a, i look younger when i shave so it's not just it's not just a blade it, it's a time machine that's really, oh. that's what you're, what you got here <laughs> so go to harrys.com <laughs> And use promo code book, and you get five dollars off your Harry's starter cook. It's 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 good for men and ladies. Um, maybe someone you know is going off to college. 
you know, you mm. got a you got a daughter or a son or a niece or a nephew or a grandkid, maybe take care, you know, because that's even worse. You're paying you're paying ten thousand dollars for a blade, and you just want beer money and book money, man. You don't want to spend on razor blades. So keep your um, new coed um, looking sharp and shave. Get sign them up for some Harry's, and you can have them sent automatically. And you know, maybe they'll 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 shave a little better. They'll respect themselves a little bit more. Wear you know a little better clothes. They'll they'll get a better job and take care of you. Your dotage. So it's a retirement plan. <laughs> this is like some real Don Draper stuff. Yeah, it's doing a retirement here. plan. Really, I think of it. It's not just a blade. It's a time you, you, machine. You think of it as a four hundred one k. Your Harry's uh, <laughs> subscription to uh, to uh, to uh, someone younger than you. Thank you so I've much. I've never to felt so inspired about shaving my legs. Well, that's what we're here for. We got to move some units. <laughs> so thanks so much to Harry's. Harry's dot com. Uh, offer code book to get you uh, rolling with some Harry's. All right. Speaking All right, of giant speaking publishers, of, juicy say, data. Of moving units. Moving units. Juicy. This was good. This is good stuff. This is so much good PRH stuff. PRH released their first half results uh, Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, and PRH, I think we're thinking now, does more than half of the U.S. trade book market. I don't actually yes. know. It's, it's It might even be 60% at this point. Their revenues were up a whopping 16. Two percent in the first half of 20, 20, 2015. They did almost two billion dollars themselves. One point one nine billion dollars in revenues. Paula Hawkins' debut novel, *The Girl on the Train*. We know it's done well, but listen to this: four and a half million copies across all formats. Uh, Gray, Gray, in its first two weeks of publication in the U.S. and U.K. across all formats. million units in two weeks. That is not looking good good for the ghost at a watchman train. The conductor is getting nervous. The bridge is out, and the people are bailing off um, that particular wager. I think you're alone on that train. I'm the conductor, and I'm even sort of uh, putting lace in my boots a little bit. Uh, Huge results. For, for PRH. Up 16.2%, so the sky is not falling. No, no, no. And while well, well, 4.5 million copies, so between the so between Gray and Girl on the Train, that's 8 million books, which they get, what, 50% of the cover price on average, so $10. Mm-hmm. So that's only, I mean, those, those are big sellers, but those are only $80 million in revenue for this one point. I mean, it's a, a drop in the bucket is maybe... Not putting it quite right, but one point nine million—that's a lot of that's a lot of books. So many. That's a lot of books. Uh, and ebooks and Marcus audiobooks. Dole, the CEO of the publishing house, thanked employees, saying, "In my most optimistic moments, I could not have foreseen the publishing successes we have been enjoying this year." That's great. Um, we all know the industry is unpredictable. Blah blah blah. We can consistently rely though on our teams around the world. This is all feel good stuff for if you're working there. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, like. Probably the two titles aren't enough to be sort of an outlier just because you got lucky with these couple, though it certainly doesn't hurt. And again, the E.L. James is only the last couple of uh, Right, of yeah, days. those might be the big drivers, you know, they're yeah. they're leading the way. But Random House, Penguin Random House makes a lot of good books. Yes, they they do. sell a lot of good books. Yep, 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 yep. I mean, they also had, I'm just off the top of my head, they had a new Morris in this year, so mm-hmm. I'm sure that sold well. Well, uh, they published Aziz Ansari's uh, memoir. Yes. He had got like a $3 million advance for yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking they probably sold a bunch of those, bunch of those books. So um, it'd be oh, they have a oh, never mind. It's next half of the year. Oh yeah, yeah. There's some stuff coming in the back half of the year too because mm-hmm. they've got the Franzen, right? Is that Knopf? no FSG has oh, the FSG, Franzen, so that's, but uh, they have um, City on Fire, the Garth oh, Kalberg yes. debut novel that got a bajillion dollar mm-hmm. advance. There. Well, you know what I'm seeing a lot of on the subway is the Martian. 
Ah, uh, yes. And mm-hmm. I think people have been seeing the trailer. They're dipping their toes in that. Michelle listened to the audiobook recently and loved it and has passed it on to several other people. One day I was, I was taking the train in and I saw three people reading paperbacks of The Martian. I'm like, huh. And that's Crown, which is PRH. Yep. Uh, Riverhead is having a huge year. Oh, Riverhead, year, which is Paul And Hawkins. that's a Penguin yep. imprint. Um, so... Uh, yeah. If if Penguin Random House can be seen as a uh, bellwether for the U.S. trade industry, the you know business is a booming sixteen point two percent in a year for a mature business is a huge, the kids are all right a huge number there. So, um, well, you know, publishers are going to start to to release mid year numbers. Uh, PRH was certainly uh, uh, leading with strength there. Uh, coming back in below. Okay, let's do it. This is now. Here's a weird story. What did you think of this story? I, I don't know a, which one you're gonna. The, the, the Indianapolis's big uh, free libraries campaign. It's interesting. Yeah, I have the same up top question mark uh, <laughs> as well. So this is a the 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 Indianapolis library is doing a campaign called Big Free Libraries, c- clearly dovetailing onto. Uh, the little free library movement, mm-hmm. um, and and it's an it's art installations. It's art installations also. around like the city, functioning library things that are also art installations. Yeah, and the books you just take them. It's a it's called the public collection. Yeah, a two year program intended to support literacy and art appreciation in the Indianapolis community through make, making books freely available to the public at eight art installations all around the downtown area. Uh, <sighs> it's cool. It's cool. I guess. I don't know. There's something, again, I, I I don't really begrudge dollars and effort spent on putting books into the world. I'm just trying to look at, like, are they trying to compete with little free yeah. libraries? Are they trying to I, tap in? I think they're, ta- I, I don't think they're competing. Okay. I think this is like riding the coattails of the little free library movement, which puts books out into the public in maybe in unexpected locations. And there's a really there's a really powerful charm factor yes. to the little free libraries. People just Grass love roots. seeing those yeah. around. It, right. It's this thing that communities are doing for the other people who live in their communities. It feel it's very cool. Um and I I think, you know, we've established ourselves as fans of little free libraries here. Some of these installations are like awesome looking Dr. Seuss contraptions where you turn a crank and it moves the shelf around and then you can see the books and p- pick one out. Like, I think this is a good books are cool. Here's a cool thing the library has done. But I think my only reservation is how much did this cost if it cost the public library? And could those dollars have been used in a way that was more effective for the library's patrons? Yeah, I, I've, I've been wondering recently, too, like the little free library movement has a little mojo behind it. Now we see people talking about it. And um, we talk about on the site. And when we write about a little free library, something gets a lot of attention and people are interested mm-hmm. in it. And I do wonder, like, I mean, they're certainly not competing with a public library, but they, they're doing something similar than but different that I can't really quite put my – you know what I'm talking I mean – Yeah, I think it's that grassroots yeah, thing. Because it's like they are doing – they're not – they're doing some of the things a library do, but they're not certainly replacing not everything a library does. But the rules are different, right? Like my understanding of a little mm-hmm. Florida library is you can take a book and you don't have to bring it back. Like it's no expectation necessarily that you bring the book back. Yeah, right? it's kind of a give a book, take yeah. a book situation. And you can do both or either. You can bring something and, you know, like put in a book you just read and take something else out. But there is no expectation that you'll 
return it. Right. So, you know, it does something different. Like, it's much more like browsing a used bookstore. You can't really be looking for anything particular, but you have to be open to sort of what everyone puts there. Who knows where the books are coming from a lot of times. I see them around my neighborhood, and I can tell that there, there are some other book reviewers in my neighborhood because you can <laughs> see there's arcs and uh, galleys and uh, advanced reading copies of all kind, you know, finished pre-release books there. Interesting stuff. Um, Swapna, who um, is our managing editor of panels, runs her own, and she kind of gives us updates about what's going on coming. And very interesting to see, you know, kind of, there's a connection too between the last story we did about Penguin Random House's numbers and libraries of all kinds and little free libraries. It really is amazing. And I, I can't think of another industry in which there's a big corporate industry that also has a part of the industry it's in that's largely free. Right, mm-hmm. that you have you have libraries that are paid for with tax dollars, but there's no cost, at least to I know of, in most places to the end user. Like you don't have to pay extra, like five bucks to get a library card. You have to use it, and if you you know return something late, you have to pay. But like you have the, these publicly funded, beloved institutions that not only will people pay to have free books for other people to read in big buildings, but now we're at the point where I'm going to put a little one in my yard or at the end of my driveway. That you know, we think of them as also non-commercial products at the same time. So it's very, it's very unusual. I think if someone else can think of a different industry that's like this, I'd like to know. Maybe people, some people have. When I brought this up in private conversations, well, at public transportation, but that's not different. Mm. Like you don't go rent a car. You know, you don't right. go borrow a car. Like, like I think this is tied to this feeling and belief that readers have that books are a public a public good right exactly good. yes right yes, yes and yes. that more books in the world is better for everyone we you know we believe that reading opens our eyes and changes our world and gives us a broader understanding and that books do all these good things yeah. for us and that we want that to be available to everyone and i think the little free library is that we want to participate in that, yeah. you know, like I can donate books to my library. I donate books to Goodwill, but there's something about like putting things in a little free library that you're doing it. You can like watch it and see the people from your community mm-hmm. come and, and leave books, then take them something hands on. It feels good to to be doing the thing and I think contributing to putting these things that you love, that you know are powerful out into the world for other people to have access to. There's there's really something there. And you're right. Like, we haven't seen little free uh, MP3 download DVD stations. Pl- in DVD stores <laughs> right. or, right. you know, little free CSAs or, uh, you know, it's just there's no analog that, that, that I can think of. I guess clothing might be one, but you don't. I mean, you can go to the Salvation Army and something, get mm-hmm. something for very inexpensive. But the, the sure, thing that's like, crazy is like, you know, we're going to talk about new books in a minute. Like I, I put on hold uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web. New book. Mm. Like a new book. And it's You know, I'm like third on the hold list. But that's not the same as, you know, getting something from Salvation Army or Goodwill or something like that. It was after the fact. It's much later. Like you're competing directly with front list full priced hardback titles. It's, it's really insane that the publishing industry exists at all. I mean <laughs> – if the publishing industry went away, like in, libraries wouldn't have anything to put on the shelves, but it's that they compete. That's something that's hard to remember about book publishing as an industry is that they compete to some degree. I mean, they are selling the books, but you can also get them for free. Um, and the same romance about books and idealism about books that people have that makes us fun libraries, I also think makes us willing to pay for books for ourselves. So maybe it goes hand in hand, but very interesting to see. I wonder if there are things, though, that public libraries could do overtly to support little fray libraries. I wonder if there are, you know, mm. public libraries like 
you know, could you oh, distribute guess, plans like, or uh, best practices or provide maps or, of cities or, you know, where the free maybe, libraries in our city here? Maybe books that the public library weeds could go into yeah, little free right. libraries. Yeah, they have like a shelf where, you know, mm-hmm. if you run a little free library, come take these and, you know, get them out into the universe. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it, seems like the, it seems like little free libraries might be something that public libraries want to support, right? I mean, that seems like... I don't know. Think of it as as extended service or uh, you know community outreach of some kind. I haven't. If any of you know of, I would love this feedback. If any of you know of a library that is overtly doing support and outreach and uh, you know stuff with little people running little free libraries, I'd love to know about it. I'd find that super fascinating. Okay, we got one more sponsor before we talk about uh, new books, which is uh, tall tall order this week. Tell tell me about (laughs) tell me about this thing called Script. Scribd is a subscription book service that gives you access to more than a million books and audiobooks. So you've got a phone, right? And you can download apps onto it and it goes everywhere with you, like the subway or the waiting room at the doctor's office mm-hmm. or the place that changes your tires and always takes longer than they say they're going to take. And we all know that it's a bad idea to leave the house without something to read. Uh, or for me, it's a bad idea to like go to my couch without something to read. So you download Scribd, you go to Scribd.com slash Book Riot, you get your subscription, you'll get a free month when you go to Scribd.com slash Book Riot, and then you read to your little heart's content from their enormous catalog of ebooks and audiobooks. Scribd has some of the biggest publishers around. They've got major houses, HarperCollins, Simon and Schuster, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. They've also got small presses like McSweeney's Counterpoint Tin House. They have a ton yes. of books. Like whatever you're into, they've got something for it. Um it gives you unlimited reading and you choose from more than 40,000 audiobooks as well, including some of the biggest new releases. Scribd helps you find your way to the books you're going to love. So you can search for genre, you can search for your favorite authors, you can look at curated lists by theme and topic that is the those lists are made by Scribd editors who know all the things that are in the catalog and they put them together and say, "So you're into this idea, here are a bunch of books about that thing." And the Scribd algorithm pays attention to what you rate and which books you like and also which books you don't like so that they can recommend you other things that you will read. And hopefully your reading on Scribd gets better and better. So Scribd.com slash Book gets you one month for free. After that, it's $8.99 a month, unlimited ebook reading plus one audiobook. They also have audiobook credits that you can buy. This is a change in their model. We talked about it last week in a little bit more detail, but they have um, audiobook credits you can buy. So if you want to listen to more than one audiobook per month, you can do that as well. Some great comics also available in Scribd. Lumberjanes, which is my current favorite, is there. Um, Hexed, which is a great comic that has to do with art, is there as well. Tons and tons and tons. Um, I just think Scribd is awesome for exploring your and expanding your readerly horizons because there's no risk in trying something new. And we talk about this like every time we talk about Scribd because I just think it's the greatest thing. You can be at the doctor's office stuck in the waiting room noodling around like, you know, I think maybe I want to read some essays, but I've never read this author before or I've never read essays about this thing before. Let me noodle and see what's in Scribd. Open a book. Give it a shot. If you love it, you keep going. If you don't, you just pick yep. something else and you're out nothing it's kind of other that than pleasure the time. of browsing a bookstore in your pocket. You know, like yes. that feeling of like I'm not sure, I'm gonna browse and flick and turn and twist and 
and double tap um, rather than yeah, wander and and and, uh, and mosey. Man, we know readers love to make lists oh. of things to read, and Scribd will satisfy yes. that desire for you. I have lost hours. I am not exaggerating to scrolling through, <laughs> like, <laughs> and just adding things to my list. And then there's pleasure in looking at the yeah, finished oh, yeah. list of like, oh, these are all the things that I could <laughs> read if I wanted to. It's real. It's enjoyable to see what's there. If you want to give this a shot, maybe you're not an ebook reader yet and you want to see what that business is all about, or you're not reading on your phone and you want to see what that's all about, this is a good way to do it too. Um, I read a lot on my phone. I know you read on your phone when you're on the go. Mm-hmm. So scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash book riot. Get yourself a free month. If you love it, Eight ninety nine a month after that for all the ebooks you can read plus one audiobook a month. There are so many things to choose from and we'll help you get started at scribd.com slash book riot. You'll also see fifteen of our favorite titles that are available in their catalog. All right. Okay. Now we can't do all the new books because we don't we, we, we don't have sixteen hours. But yeah. But you know where else we so talk highlight the about ones you want to talk about. Then we'll do the, <laughs> the ones where, you know, Everyone knows that are out. We can talk about. That. Yeah, so I, I, there, I was overwhelmed by the number of new books that were out this week. So I really just chose the two yeah. that I think are the most interesting to talk about. If you want to hear about all kinds of new books, you can tune into the All the Books oh, podcast. Good tease. Which, yeah, excellent tease. Thank you. I'm just gonna, you know, brush my shoulders off and do some shameless self promotion. Uh-huh. Um, I host it with Liberty Hardy, who is incredible and reads more books than anyone I have ever met, and that is not an exaggeration. It's a half hour show every week. It comes out on Tuesdays about the week's best, most interesting book releases. We each pick three or four. Um, we, I read widely, Liberty reads even more widely, and we go in depth about uh, eight books every week. Um, so definitely more than I can give you in this segment. So my two for the week this week, the first one is one of my favorite books of the yeah. year. This is like in my top five, and it was a huge surprise to me that I came out this way with this book. I loved it so much. Uh, it's called Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho. This is a fantasy novel set in an alternate Victorian England uh, where the main character, his name is Zacharias Wythe. He is the Sorcerer Royal to the Society of Unnatural Philosophers, which is the rich guys in Victorian England who either can perform magic or are rich enough that it doesn't matter that they can't. Uh, They get to be members of the club anyway. Mm. Magic in this, in Zencho's world, comes from Fairyland, and it gets distributed from Fairyland out to the rest of the world. And for some reason, there is no more magic in England. They've been cut off. So Zacharias has to go to Fairyland to find out what's up and why the fairies have cut off the supply of magic. To England. Um, complicating his life is the fact that he's a black man in Victorian England. He's a freed slave. The other members of the community don't trust him and don't want him to be the sorcerer royal. But that's one of those positions where like, uh, it's like the sword in the stone where the sword picks you. Um, he was the one that the I think it's the staff in the book chose. And so like, it's undisputable that he is the sorcerer royal. But his peers don't like it. Uh, His position is contested. He's got to go to fairyland. Along the way, he stops at this school for girls to give a talk as a favor to a friend. And he sees that the girls at this school are being taught to suppress magic. They all have magical skills. They've been sent there by their parents who don't know what to do with these young girls that can perform magic. And they're being taught like hexes, basically, that are harmful to them. They're going to hurt themselves. And he's like, we can't have this. Girls should be able to do magic. They shouldn't be harming themselves, suppressing their magic. And also, 
hi, England is low on magic. We need all the magic we can get. So it's better for girls to be able to do magic. It's good for girls to do it. It's good for the world if girls do magic. He, so he decides he's also, after he figures out this fairyland business, he's going to reform magical education. He meets a woman at the school named Prunella, who's lived there for she went to school there and she's you know been living there um, sort of as a teacher and servant ever since. And Prunella has really incredible powers. So she teams up with Zacharias. They become a pair. Uh, she's not like a secondary sidekick. She becomes his equal. Um, and they set out on this crusade to bring England's magic back and also to change magical education. This book is so great. It's so fun. It's fast paced. It's really funny. The cast is diverse. The uh, female characters are fully drawn it is this book is feminist as all get out mm. and i just loved it like zencho is clearly saying something about the history of how women have been presented in fantasy stories and how it's totally silly that only the boys ever really do magic her characters have real points of view about it it was it's this book was so much fun to read and then i found out when i was finished that it's the first in a trilogy and i'm not even mad that now i have to wait <laughs> for the next ones like you and i were talking about o'neill's dictum right. where you don't start a series until the series is finished I, don't, I usually am that way too i don't even care i will wait however long i have to wait for the next one i hope it's not very long though because it was so so good i bailed out on jonathan strange and mr norrell about halfway through, mm. which is still like, I read like 500 yeah, pages of yep. that thing earlier this summer. I just couldn't do it. Sorcerer to the Crown is exactly what I wanted that kind of book to be. And I think if you loved Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and that like high hat Victorian sensibility, but you want something that's a little more self-aware and has a sense of play to it, Sorcerer to the Crown by Zencho is going to do that for you as well. I just loved the crap out of this book. It's so, so good. Um, the other big book this week that I want to talk about is one that you mentioned earlier, The Girl in the Spider's Web. It's the continuation of Stieg Larsson's Millennium series starring Lizbeth Salander. Um, this was written by David Lagerkrantz based on, uh, I think, notes and maybe partial yeah, manuscripts. Yeah, that's my understanding, too. That Larson had left behind, and it picks up the adventures of Blomquist and Lizbeth Salander. Um, I, that's all I know so far. I'm going to read it. I'm so going to read not, it, too. The reviews I haven't have read generally too been synopses. good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you like the original books, you're going to you're going to enjoy this on the whole. Of course, you know, all reviews are some other ones. But right. I, I, my, from my reading of the reviews, I'm conf, you know, I've got I've got a good feeling that we're, we're going to like this. So the, the other big books that we didn't talk about, just, so you know, the, the Franzen is out this week. Purity is out. Uh, Elena Ferrante, the end of her Neapolitan novel Quartet. Um, and the name is escaping me. I didn't put it down right in front of me. But the, the first one is my brilliant friend. And the, the fourth one is out. People we know love this book. A lot of book ride mm -hmm. people, a lot of people we know. Uh, we're both going to read it. We're both going to read because O'Neill's dictum is, uh, is fulfilled yeah. now that it's over. But I've heard they're great. Um, it's uh, translated from the Italian. Um, but those are, the, those are the big four, really, this week that, that are out. Uh, that's our show. We got a little bonus show. Yeah, this you did. Week. Got a yeah. little, little extra, little extra show. Um, used offer code Riot. You got a little extra. See, that's what happens. Oh, hey uh, there. You can find us uh, on Twitter at uh, the Jeff O'Neill. That's me. O N E A L. Rebecca Shinsky at uh, Rebecca Shinsky. S C H I N S K Y. You can give us feedback. Podcast at bookriot.com uh, is our email address. You can find show notes for this and other episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. Also, if you go to bookriot.com and you, on the top navigation, there's a little drop down for a podcast. 
You can find all of our podcasts there. We have uh, all the books. We mentioned Rebecca, Reading Lives, as we mentioned with me. We also have Dear Book Nerd uh, with Rita Mead, who it's a podcast about life, love, and literature. Has she has a, Every couple weeks, she has a show with a new guest taking on a different uh, bookish advice topic. And coming Amanda's show starts next, next week. week. Uh, Amanda Get Nelson's booked. Get Booked podcast starts. Uh, the first episode drops on September 10th. I believe, but you can find all of them there. So if you like one of these shows, chances are you're going to like some others. So do check those out there. You can come to Book Riot Live on November you 7th can. and 8th and hang out with us for two days of book nerd partying galore. All the information for that is at bookriotlive.com and you can save 20 bucks on your registration with the code wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. I think that's, that's it. That's it. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> Have a good okay, week. Okay, bye.